Welcome. It's so good to be with you for this episode of Encounters with Dignity. I'm Caitlin Morneau, your host for this podcast from Catholic Mobilizing Network, where we illuminate the synergies between restorative justice, gospel values, and Catholic social teaching. In this episode, we will hear from Jesuit priest Father Greg Boyle. Father Greg is the founder and director of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, California, which accompanies formerly gang-involved individuals through a range of social supports and enterprises. In addition to teaching practical job skills, Homeboys offers a loving environment to walk with these individuals as they heal from trauma and reintegrate with their community. Father Greg is the author of best-selling books, Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion, and Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Homeboy's mission is quite visibly imbued with restorative justice principles. Restorative justice, after all, is fundamentally about living in right relationship with one another by honoring our mutuality and connectedness. This is the same spirit that Father Greg has helped to cultivate at Homeboys. From his decades of ministry, he has gained profound insights into the meaning of kinship, belonging, and integral human dignity. When these qualities form the foundation of a ministry or advocacy, especially in response to crime and violence, healing and hope become possible. As you listen to Father Greg expound on these themes, I invite you to meditate on these questions. When in your life have you felt truly seen and cherished? Who are you in awe of, given all that they have to carry? How are you called to stand with people who are marginalized by society? Let's listen. I've been kind of here in Los Angeles working with gang members for 37 years now, I guess. You know, I think in the early days we started a school and then we started a jobs program to identify felony-friendly employers willing to hire gang members. And then we couldn't find those folks, so we just started things. Maintenance crew, landscaping crew, graffiti removal crew to build our child care center, all made up of rivals from the eight warring gangs just in my parish. So it began just as a parish thing. And then it grew to uh, deal with the 60 gangs, 10,000 gang members in what we call the Hollenbeck Police Precinct. And then it's now we serve the whole county. So there's not a gang member in any zip code or gang that doesn't know uh, who we are and what we are and what we do. So we don't exist for those who need help, it's only for those who want it. So you have to kind of walk through the door just like any recovery program. The 18 month uh, training program is kind of the centerpiece, but our principle kind of evolved over the years. You know, um, we would say when well, an educated gang member may or may not go back to prison or, or an employed one may or may not, but now it's our contention in fact, guarantee that a healed gang member will never reoffend and go back to prison. So that's become the centerpiece, you know, that uh, the homies themselves always talk about, you know, you have to do the work and it's kind of an inner work. And so there's a lot of therapy and a lot of group stuff. 
But, you know, every homie who walks through our doors comes barricaded behind a wall of shame and disgrace. And the only thing that can really scale that wall is tenderness. So we try to foster uh, tenderness in each other so that we can be attentive to the homies who come through and, and they can be held in a safe place. And they come in and then they can suddenly breathe more easily and then they start to breathe differently you know they start to find a resilience that they never knew before and if it's true enough that the traumatized are more likely to cause trauma it's equally true that the cherished will find their way to the joy there is in cherishing themselves and others eight months ago was the last time i went to new york and chicago and had two homies and who'd been to prison and they got up and told their stories. You know, and honest to God, if their stories had been flames, you'd have to keep your distance, otherwise you'd get scorched. And I, I think it sort of led everybody in the audience to, um, to truly stand in awe at what they had to carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it. It, it's sort of why I always bring them. It's in the early days when the demonizing of gang members was so such a wholesale thing. Um, I would tell stories about homies or I would bring homies because you wanted to put a human face on it because you were choosing to stand with the demonized so that the demonizing would stop. And then later on, I think as the, the demonizing diminished, and I'm happy to say it did, then there was this, how do we move beyond judgment, away from judgment and get closer to awe? In the Acts of the Apostles, it says, and awe came upon everyone. And so the, the measure of health in any community really resides in our ability to stand in awe at what folks have to carry. And then, we're, then we all become, you know, friends with our own brokenness and our own wound. And it keeps us from being tempted to despise the wounded. And, and that's kind of the hope in bringing homies to uh, kind of tell their experience because we're quick to judge as human beings. And, and it's nice to hear people who know that they're a whole lot more than the worst things they've ever done, so they don't identify with it anymore. There's a great book called The Deepest Well by Nadine Burke Harris, who's our Surgeon General here in the state of California. And it's about the ACEs study, the 10 checklist of traumas that if you've experienced them under the age of 18, 18 and under, she says, if, you've, if you're four out of the 10 checklist, four or five, that kid is going to have uh, serious health issues as an adult. And I would add uh, difficulties in socializing if you're a four or five. Every man or woman who walks through our doors, 15,000 of them a year, every single one is a nine or a 10 on the ACEs, which is whoa, that's just so huge. And so once folks come to know that, you know, and the 10 are things like 
you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, emotional abuse, parent in prison, parent mentally ill, parent addicted to drugs. There are 10 of them. And if you've been exposed to these things and to the tune of nine or 10 out of 10, then that's just staggering. And so it should lead us not to kind of say, wow, how come you're not making better choices? Well, I mean, not all choices are created equal. Right. So I think morality is the least helpful thing when it comes to understanding the gulf that exists between the haves and the have nots and those who have access to things and those who don't and the great disparity uh, in, in the, the difference between everything from healthcare to education to job opportunities, you name it. So my hope is that at some point uh, we will bridge the distance that exists, that we will eliminate uh, the least helpful thing, which is this striking of the high moral distance that separates us and get to a place of real awe and understanding of what people have to carry, which is I've never had to carry in my 66 years of living. I've never had to carry what the folks at Homeboy have to carry. And so, and the day won't ever come when I have more courage or I am more noble or, or I'm closer to God than they are. So it's an easy thing to allow my heart to be altered by them and to, to be reached by them and to receive them. I've never felt tempted to transform their lives or to fix them or rescue them or save them. Uh, quite the opposite, you know, I, I, my salvation is sort of connected to this, you know, in the most selfish way that you go to the margins not to make a difference but so that the folks at the margins make you different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it's about us, then it's exquisitely mutual. But if you go to the margins to make a difference, then it's about you. But you wanna make sure it's always about us and that in every step we're obliterating the illusion that we are separate. But I think the secret sauce at Homeboy are probably our cultural competences is what we call a, a therapeutic mysticism, which means we see the wholeness in people. And once people are seeing the wholeness in them, they, they see that in themselves. And the homies, uh, you know, they're used to being watched because they're all came from prison, most of them, and but they're not used to being seen and so we want to see them, you know, and as the Buddhists say, oh, nobly born, remember who you really are. And so we're always reminding people of the truth of who they are. And when you remind people of that in a culture of tenderness that nurtures them, then they become that truth, then they inhabit that truth. And no bullet can pierce it. So we're not that interested in surviving as the fittest, but thriving as the nurtured. And there are certainly a lot of things, especially in terms of restorative justice and addressing mass incarceration that need to get addressed at the policy level and how people govern in individual states and et cetera. But on the ground, you know, part of our own advocacy is, is embodied. You know, it's, it's with people 
as they really carry more things than most. People whose burdens are more than they can bear and, and people whose dignity has been denied. So you create a community that cherishes them. And, and that's as compelling as anything. I think in the early days when we listened to gang members and they said, job, 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 you know, if only we had a job. And so that's what we did. But I think probably 15 years in, once we knew gang members, we knew that healing was sort of the, the essential piece. So we still do jobs, but we've kind of shifted to this other place. Kids join gangs because of a lethal absence of hope. and. And because they're so traumatized, they haven't haven't been able to find their way clear to transform their pain, so they they can cease to transmit it. These are all things that we want to address and announce in this in our country. You know, what if we were to infuse hope to kids for whom hope is foreign? What if we helped create communities of healing? What if we, you know? delivered mental health services in a timely and culturally appropriate way? What if we did all those things? What if we stood against forgetting that we belong to each other? You know, because part of the issue I think for me is that it's always less about getting to solutions and more about getting to each other. You know, the great John Lewis said, well, we all live in the same house. But, you know, he didn't qualify that. He didn't say, you know, some people live in the basement and some people live on the third floor. No, he said, we all live in the same house. He, he didn't say, uh, one day maybe we'll live in the same house. He just says it straight out. We live in the same house. It's kind of the essential truth. And that, uh, you know, Jesus says that you may be one. And... Uh, and that's God's dream come true, is, is this kinship, this connection. And I think our God is so generous that it's not even about God. It's about us. It's about God's dream coming true, that, that there is no us and them. There's just us and that, that we recognize we all live in the same house. So we have enemies, guys who used to shoot at each other. Everyone has multiple of those people at Homeboy, but there they are, you know, uh, standing side by side, making croissants in the Homeboy Bakery, and they hate each other, and they used to shoot at each other, and their animosity is personal and deep and goes back years, and then they become the deepest kind of friends. Now, does that always happen at Homeboy Industries? Yes. Any exceptions? No. And it's because of the culture. It's the thing we most want to expose people to. And in the old days, if somebody tested dirty or just disappeared or got arrested, we used to kind of lament. We used to say, maybe they'll be back. Nobody says that now, probably for the last 10 years of our 32 year existence. Nobody says that now. They all say, they'll be back. And there's kind of a certainty about it that is unshakable and they all come back. I just had a guy yesterday come in 
And, you know, he'd been gone for a couple of years, went to prison, a good guy. But he came back, you know, it, it's what happens because once you have a dose of unconditional high regard that people hold you in, it, that it's the most compelling thing there is. That's why when I travel around the country before the pandemic, they, you know, that you run into programs and everybody has the same menu of services. But I think what's missing sometimes is how do you keep those programs from becoming the DMV? You know, please see number window 43 to receive the anger management service or to receive the domestic violence class certification or whatever it is. And we do all those things too, but boy, are they secondary to the culture of tenderness and the healing ethos. That, that's, that's the most important piece. And the odd thing is, you know, it's the culture of care and tenderness that enables them to finish their GED or get their diploma or go on to community college. It's the culture of tenderness that helps them become better parents and parent in such a way as they were never parented themselves. So all these things have, they're all these byproducts of the fact that they've been nurtured in a place that uh, held them in high regard always. The homies always say, you know, you, you gotta find the thorn underneath and it and it means what language is this violence speaking because if you just want to kind of get rid of violence then it's not very sophisticated it's kind of ham-handed and you want to get underneath it well what's this violence mean you know like we had a fight yesterday it doesn't happen very often but you know a, a fist fight three four guys and, and we're just kind of, all of us there are, are experienced enough that it's, what does this mean? Let's find the thorn underneath. And then life gets very, uh, then you have a high degree of reverence for how complex things are. It's not about you've colored outside the lines and now you're all fired, you know, because we exist for folks like this. But, and then they felt greatly remorseful. They felt they had let me down and disrespected me. And, and, and obviously that pain is greater than just about anything. I think they would have preferred to be fired rather than experience that pain like they had disappointed me. And you know, I always say, oh, I'm too busy loving you. I don't have any time left to be disappointed in you. And, but you want to get underneath, what's this about? What else is going on? How, how could we have done this differently? So then it becomes all learning, but it's not, you know, uh, nobody needed to be arrested or fired or banished or, you know, and, and so it's a good lesson because the largest mental institution in the United States of America is the LA County Jail, which tells us something very significant. It tells us how badly we're handling things. So my hope is that we will find alternatives to handling things like that. The other thing, when you go to programs that are comparable to Homeboy or 
around the country, the number one question they ask often is, how do you get gang members to go there? And honest to God, that's never been a problem for us in 32 years. It, they, they come to us and, and we don't ever uh, coax or recruit or hand out flyers or go to street corners and, you know, won't you give us a try? you know, when they're ready. And, but Homeboy is a little bit like an AA meeting, you know, uh, like who's there, somebody who's 20 years sober, somebody who's 20 minutes sober, and somebody who's drunk, but he's there. And that's kind of how we operate, you know, that people are, it's on a continuum of readiness, you know, and we're reverse cherry pickers. We don't, we don't pick folks who will give us good evidence-based outcomes. You know, we, we want the opposite. We want the, the gnarly, the belligerent, the hard-headed. That's the guy we want. Somebody who makes a good impression, we'll help them, but we won't bring them into our 18-month program. We want, we want folks who make bad impressions. Just because that's kind of who we are, and we want to be able to stay anchored in really accompanying the disposable you know, so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. And so we try to imagine, you know, in society, a circle of compassion, and then really insist on imagining nobody standing outside that circle. And, and so we kind of want to represent that, but we don't really care what our numbers say. We're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful, and we want to stay anchored in really walking with uh, folks who are nobody else, everybody else has given up on. The thing is, it's like recovery. So in recovery from alcohol or drugs, they'll always say it takes what it takes. And the same is true of, of gang recovery, if you will. You know, it's, it's the birth of a son, the death of a friend, a long stretch in prison. It takes what it takes. You know, a mother came in to see me the other day, wanted some help with her son uh, who was addicted to meth and, and extremely erratic behavior. I said, you and I can't, there's nothing we can do without him. You know, and no amount of us wanting him to go to rehab will ever be the same as him wanting to go to rehab. So it's the same principle at Homeboys. You wait for people, but there's something thrilling about the swinging of the front door. That once you come in, there's an aroma, homie said to me once. And it's true. There's some kind of palpable sense of the place that really keeps people coming back. And so uh, it's, you know, it's the principle of a attraction more than anything else. People have a longing, both in the church and outside the church. They have a longing to connect themselves to some wider, more spacious, expansive sense of things, just like our God is, is always uh, trying to move beyond this puny sense. And how do we get to a larger view, you know? And, and so if you invite people to that, they, they, they're drawn to it. And I learned that early on, you know? I just, if I shake my fist, it's about me. If I invite people to their own goodness and spacious, tender heart, then it's about us. 
And it's not about what's more effective. Again, it's always about what's more true and good and just and right. And you want to stay anchored in that and feel sustained in the God who loves us without measure and without regret. And, and you just want to be in the world who God is, compassionate, loving, and kind. And all the while, you want to take seriously what Jesus took seriously. It's a great it's how you stay anchored in the marrow of the message. Inclusion, nonviolence, unconditional loving kindness, and compassionate acceptance. And if we take those four things seriously, then we're aligned, you know, with the heart of God. And so I, I think that's kind of the essential thing. It's always the same source, which is you kind of, you, you get to this thing of the Christ in me recognizes the Christ in you. And so you delight in the people in front of you, in front of the homies and the homegirls, you know, and you, you, you receive them and you, your heart is altered and changed forever by them. It happens mutually. And then it's, then it's this God that's uh, larger than we could ever imagine. And and then it's never about some tiny puny gain or success. And that's where the joy is. You know, my joy, yours, your joy complete, which is God's hope for us all. The community at Homeboys shows us that by creating environments where people are met with mercy and compassion, we can heal wounds, cultivate resilience, and upend a throwaway culture. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he describes the qualities of mutual love, that it is sincere, anticipating one another in showing honor, enduring in hope, affliction, and prayer, rejoicing together and weeping together, exercising hospitality rather than vengeance, associating with those who are outcast. Restorative practices are another way of allowing individuals in a community to be in the habit of building sacred relationships and remembering our belonging to one another. Through sharing stories and listening deeply, we may come to know one another's wholeness and hurts. We may appreciate the tremendous weights and wounds that others must carry. And we may discern our mutual responsibility to one another when needs become clear. Through this approach, relationships become both harder to damage and easier to repair. And communities as a whole are strengthened. Thank you, Father Greg, and everyone at Homeboy Industries for your model of radical kinship. And thanks to all of you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Encounters with Dignity. Be sure to subscribe to our show from your favorite podcast platform or by visiting catholicsmobilizing.org encounters. For podcast updates and other news from Catholic Mobilizing Network, Follow us on social media or sign up for our emails at catholicsmobilizing.org join. If you feel ready to engage more deeply with restorative justice practices, then check out Paths of Renewed Encounter, CMN's restorative justice engagement guide for Catholic communities. 
Find it at catholicsmobilizing.org paths. Be sure to tune in next month to hear the powerful testimony of two families who journeyed through a restorative justice process in the wake of grave harm. Kate and Deacon Andy Kralmere, whose daughter Anne was killed by her boyfriend Connor in 2010, are joined by Connor's parents, Julie and Michael, as well as their restorative justice facilitator and 2019 MacArthur Fellow, Sujatha Balika. Let us close in prayer. God of abounding compassion, how you long for us to cherish and nurture one another into thriving. How you desire for us to see the wholeness in one another as you do. How you yearn for your beloved creation to know margins no longer. Pour into our hearts your grace, tenderness, and healing spirit to make your dream come.